Well, this morning we are in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2 as we get back to our series in the book of Acts, now uh, a few weeks in, three or four. I think it's fair to say that we in the West in the 21st century are pretty cynical, a pretty skeptical bunch in general. Expert opinion is easily dismissed. Everything and anything, it seems, is up for debate these days. Fake news is a problem, but we don't agree on which side is more to blame for more fake news than the other. Studies today show that no one really believes in studies anymore. Just came out recently. In fact, 89% of Americans don't trust polls, according to a recent poll. Yet it's not just pure cynicism out there. I got to thinking this week how we, we still trust some stamps of approval, some endorsements, some recommendations. At least we give some head knowledge to them. We give some acknowledgement. I thought of this this week as I was sitting in my study surrounded by loads of books, many of which on the back have endorsements from other people, these blurbs that recommend it. Now, I know how these things work. I've written a couple, just a couple. Uh, but sometimes you write it because it's a friend. Sometimes you write a recommendation because you'd like that person to write one for your book someday. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the recommendation on the back of a book is really noteworthy and you take notice of it and you're influenced by it. Behind me in my study, there's a a drawer of academic records and correspondence. I don't need that anymore, but I can't seem to throw it away. In, in that drawer, I have letters of recommendations from former professors who, who once wrote on my behalf as I applied to a, a new program or for a new scholarship. I'm thankful for those letters of recommendation. They, they appeared to have worked. The list could go on to include political endorsements and school accreditation and notary public and, and food that's certified as organic, celebrities endorsing products and commercials and ads, consumer report rankings, certificates of authenticity, or even Yelp reviews on the web. Despite our cynical culture, of who cares, who says, whatever. We haven't totally given up on stamps of approval or endorsements. And yet, we're right to be suspicious because we have been led astray. We have been lied to at times. People do lose their credibility. We shouldn't today trust Jell-O pudding pops because Bill Cosby told us to back in the 80s. They're still trustworthy, but not because of Bill Cosby. The, the best of rankings change year to year. Political endorsements come and go. All this is like shifting sand. But let's just imagine, what if there was something that God himself endorsed? Imagine a book endorsed by God, not made up, not... Not the author thought God told him to write this down on his behalf, but God actually endorsed a book and said it's all true. Imagine God endorsing a, a Christian school, saying he agrees with all the curriculum and these teachers are all the best teachers. 
Imagine a guy walking into an interview with a letter of recommendation in his hand written by God. Well, did you know that there is something in this world upon which God has put his seal? In fact, he has given multiple stamps of approval on this. He's given multiple certificates of authenticity, his best endorsements, even supernatural proofs that his endorsement is spot on. And this one thing is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the point of the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Luke records for us, or really he summarizes for us, a sermon that Peter gives there in Acts chapter 2. Now I said summarizes, I should clarify, I should point that out. I should point it out because I'm not going to give a three-minute sermon, which is about as long as it takes to read Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. You might think, that sounds like a good sermon, a three-minute sermon. But every good preacher loves to point out verse 40. Take a look at it. With many other words, Peter bore witness and continued. So Luke's giving us a summary of a a longer sermon. In fact, I, I looked at the Greek this week, and when Peter says many other words here, many other words in the Greek means at least an hour. So we'll be under that today. Okay. Before we read our passage, let's recall what we've covered thus far. And let's bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us thus far. It was a couple of weeks ago that we saw this scene in Jerusalem in which a miraculous event where Jesus' followers began to praise God in previously unlearned languages gave rise to a question from the Jerusalem crowd. What does this mean? And then Peter began to answer that. We saw the first part of Peter's answer a couple of weeks ago. The first part of Peter's answer looks to the book of Joel, hundreds of years before Jesus. Joel foresaw a a day, a last day, last days, in which the Spirit of God would be poured out on God's people and they would proclaim or prophesy, they would preach, they would tell of God's ways and his works in a special and unique way. Peter is saying, Joel 2 is happening here, folks. It's the last day God is pouring out his Spirit. That explains what this means, at least in part. But now today we're going to look at the rest of Peter's explanation, the rest of his sermon. And we'll also get to a bit of the result that comes from his sermon here in Acts 2. So let's read, starting in verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know... This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, there are two parts to what I just read. There's Peter's Christ-centered declaration, and then Luke records for us the response that happens afterwards. We'll focus on the first part of that this week, the declaration of Christ, and then we'll, we'll get to the response this week, but then come back to it again next week, because again, these, these things overlap a bit. Now, notice the repetition, or maybe even progression of hearing and knowing and certainty in Peter's appeal. In verse 14, he addresses men of Judea. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Verse 22, hear these words. Verse 29, I say to you with confidence. And then the the sum of them all, let all the house of Israel. Verse 36, therefore know for certain. Peter wants his hearers to know. He wants them to know that Jesus is Christ and Lord. You see that in verse 36. Therefore know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ. So here's the first section. Know Jesus of Nazareth is Christ the Lord. It's interesting here that he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, comma, a man. Notice the juxtaposition. That's just a fancy big word for putting two things side by side to to compare and to contrast. So notice the juxtaposition of Jesus of Nazareth, a man, is Christ the Lord. 
You might be used to that reality, but Peter's hearers would have struggled to put those ideas together. And so he begins with Jesus' humanity. He was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. As the saying went, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And so this was one of the quick ways of dismissing Jesus' authority. People of Nazareth said, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? We, We watched him grow up. If we know him, he can't be a big deal. This is Nazareth, a town of 400 with no stoplights. They have funny accents in Nazareth. But Jesus was a Nazarene. He grew up there. He grew up. He was human. His humanity is essential to the Christian faith. If you doubt it, read 1 John toward the end of the Bible. So God has made Jesus of Nazareth a man, Christ and Lord. When it says that God made him Lord, it doesn't mean that God took some favored human being, maybe the best of all the human beings, and then made him a superhuman being. Oh no, as we'll see all throughout Acts, elsewhere in the New Testament as well, Jesus is the God-man. He wasn't a man who became God-like or had God-like features. He was eternally God before he ever took on flesh. And when I say took on flesh, that doesn't mean that God decided to put on a human suit and drive it around for 33 years or so, but he became a man. So how do we know that he wasn't just a man then, just a Nazarene? Well, on account of his miracles, number one. Know that Jesus of Nazareth is Christ the Lord on account of his miracles, verse 22. He is a man attested to you, Peter says, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. The crucifixion of Jesus was in this city only 50 days before In the months leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus was massively popular. He was famous and infamous. Thousands had witnessed his miracles of healing and feeding the hungry and casting out demons. These were done in their midst. Everyone had heard about them, as you yourselves know. It's interesting that in the Bible, no one doubts the veracity of Jesus' miracles. Jesus has opponents who are willing to smear his name and try to discredit him. And if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, never once do you find them questioning whether the miracle actually happened. If you or I went to Vegas and saw David Copperfield or David Blaine, these magicians, we'd be impressed, we'd be mystified. But most of us wouldn't think it's magic. We know this is illusion. We know that they're doing tricks. We'd say, I can't explain it. I have no idea how he did that, but I'm sure there's an explanation. But no one dismissed Jesus' miracles like that as just sappy card tricks or sleight of hand or smoke and mirrors or the work of a charlatan. Instead, Jesus' opponents accused him of using the power of Satan when he did his miracles, even though that doesn't make any sense. 
Jesus pointed that out to him. It doesn't make any sense, guys, for me to cast out demons by the power of the head demon. Doesn't make sense. He wouldn't give me that power. So the miracles were undeniable. And undeniably, the power of God. They attested to you by God. They were physical and visible and undeniable proofs of God's blessing upon him. But more than that, not just God's blessing, but that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. Remember, that's where Peter's going in verse 36. This Jesus is Lord and Christ. Christ is not his last name. It was his title. Christ is Greek, and then Messiah is the same word, but in Hebrew, Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the long-awaited one, the one. Sometimes he's just referred to as the one. John the Baptist did this. When he was in prison and wondering whether Jesus really was the one, he sent his disciples to Jesus, ask him if he's the one or we should wait for another. And then Jesus says, well, what do you see? Tell John what you see here. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, the blind see, the lame walk, the, the deaf hear. The sick are healed. Tell John, this is what's happening. This is what you've seen. This is the one. I am the one. How do we know? Because of the miracles. Also, secondly, on account of his crucifixion. Crucifixion. That's what verse 23 deals with. The crucifixion or death of Jesus. Now, now this too should be jarring to us at least the first time we encounter it that the Christ was crucified. We're, we're used to hearing that, but, but that would sound like an automatic contradiction of terms for the Jews in Jesus' time and also the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to Gentiles. It was foolishness, a stumbling block to Peter, Remember that turning point moment in Mark chapter 8 where Peter understands that Jesus is the Christ. He's the first human in Mark's gospel to confess Jesus as the Messiah, the one. Jesus says, well done. And then Jesus starts talking about going to Jerusalem and dying and being crucified. And Peter in vehement terms says, absolutely not, Lord. Again, a contradiction of terms. The Christ crucified? Remember that night on Jesus' arrest? Despite Jesus' repeated statements to his disciples that he'd be rejected and crucified, that he'd die, Peter pulls out his sword and goes at the head of one of the guards trying to arrest Jesus. He swung his sword at his head because... Even up until that last moment, right before the rest, he was still thinking, okay, here we go. It's fight time. Here we go. Get the swords out. I hope we win because Messiah wins. Messiah kicks butt. The cross doesn't make sense if that's what you're thinking. Remember the two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. 
They know that the crucifixion of Jesus has already happened. They don't understand or know of the resurrection of Jesus. They're walking, looking sad, and a stranger walks up alongside them. Unbeknownst to them, it's Jesus. The stranger asks why they're so sad. And they say, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth, he was full of God's glory and blessing and power. He was mighty indeed. And then they crucified him and he's dead. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. As if to say, we know he's not now. Oh, the cross for them was incompatible with Messiah. It was diametrically opposed to redemption. The cross for them meant that Jesus wasn't who he seemed to be. And of course, Jesus from there in Luke 24 quickly goes on to explain to these two men and later to the rest of the disciples that the prophets taught that the Christ should suffer and then enter glory. Or later on, it is written, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The prophets foretold, it is written, it must happen. It's, it's as early as Genesis 3.15 in your Bibles that the seed of the woman would experience pain and suffering in his defeat of the serpent. Messiah would come to solve a greater problem than Rome's geopolitical tyranny. Messiah came to solve the problem of human sin that's in every heart, Roman, Jew, American, Mexican, whatever. The problem of sin requires a payment of death. So the Messiah had to die. Messiah had to be a substitute sacrifice. And so Jesus didn't just predict his death. He even interpreted it before he died. He said in Mark 10, he's going to lay his life down as a ransom or a payment for many. So how does the cross prove that Jesus is Lord and Christ? Because it was the plan all along. Look at verse 23 of Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. The crucifixion was God's definite plan. It was according to the foreknowledge of God, which doesn't mean that God simply foreknew that it would happen. The word in the original is much stronger than he looked into the future and saw what would happen. It means God's forethought, his foreplan, his fore ordination of something. The cross wasn't an accident, an unfortunate accident that God thankfully straightened out in the resurrection. God's sovereignty is not his amazing ability to take bad things and, and turn them around. Like sinners throw boomerangs, but God knows how this boomerang works and he can get it back the way it should be going. No, he is sovereign. He's sovereign over it all. Without himself doing evil. He is sovereign over evil without himself tempting or doing evil. Just look at the cross. Look at what led up to the cross. The cross is the ultimate example of God's sovereignty as if it could have happened any other way. 
and of human responsibility. Can you believe they killed the Lord of glory? Yes, the cross was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but Peter says after, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men when you handed him over to the Romans. Both are true. Sovereignty and human responsibility. When Judas betrayed Jesus, it wasn't that one day his feet started moving towards the temple and he looked around, what, what is happening? Why am I going towards the temple? And then why am I saying yes to this offer to betray Je How did that come out of my mouth? What's happening to me? No, Judas was greedy. Judas loved silver and Judas gave up on Jesus. When Pilate washed his hands, that that fateful moment sealing Jesus' sentence to death, it's not as though his hands uncontrollably went to this bowl and, and fell into the water. And with an out-of-body experience, Pilate said, what's happening here? I... No, Pilate was a wimp. Pilate was afraid of the people. He was afraid of insurrection. He was willing to trade justice for just one more day of peace in Jerusalem. And so Judas and the crowd and the religious leaders and Pilate and those with hammers in their hand nailing those stakes to the tree, they are all blamable for their heinous sin. And that's why Peter can say to this crowd in Jerusalem, you crucified him. They didn't all bear the same amount of responsibility. They didn't all have the same degree of involvement in the crucifixion. But no doubt as Peter addresses this crowd, some in that crowd had been among those who were offered Jesus to go free. And they said, no, give us Barabbas the robber and the insurrectionist and crucify him. No doubt some in the crowd to whom Peter preached that day had been among the mockers who were spitting and hurling insults at Jesus when he was on the cross. And many others, no doubt, would have in one way or another simply been indifferent to Jesus. In that sense, then, they had rejected Messiah, either explicitly or implicitly, and all of it leading to his cruel crucifixion. But all of it, from the jeers to the Romans, the soldiers, the high priests, the lies, the betrayal. All of it was the definite plan of God. And all of it was for our salvation. That's what Christ came to do. Not just teach, but to die and be raised. So thirdly, on account of his resurrection, we can know that Jesus of Nazareth is Christ the Lord. You crucified him, then verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for Jesus to remain dead? You might say, well, because he's God. And yes, that's true, but that's not Peter's point. Peter says that Jesus couldn't be held by death permanently because of what David wrote in Psalm 16. 
That's what Peter quotes in verse 25 in following. For David says, now quoting Psalm 16, this is concerning him that is Jesus, Peter says. In David's words, I saw the Lord always before me. For he, the Lord, is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. Here's the key. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. David could rightly write this about himself, about how God had protected him from death despite great physical threat all around him. God, for a time, kept David from death. God didn't abandon him to the place of the dead. David was uniquely in the Old Testament God's holy one. So God specially protected him, and David rightly praises God for it. That's Psalm 16. But Peter sees more in Psalm 16 than just David, and rightly so. David had temporary protection. Remember, David died. So verse 29, brothers, let me say with confidence, the patriarch David, he died, and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David was protected for a time, but, but not forever. David gave these emphatic blanket statements. You'll not, you'll not abandon me to death. You'll not let your Holy One see corruption. Well, ultimately, that's too much for David. David had been undergoing corruption for about a thousand years at the point Peter was preaching this message. He died. His tomb was known even more known than today. Back then, it was, it was known, it was visible, it had marble slabs protecting it, it was sealed. Everyone presumed David is inside. So Peter says, we know where he is, we know what's in there, it's a dead body. And of course, it's sort of dripping with irony. There's a contrast between David's occupied tomb and a son of David's empty tomb, just 48 days before a tomb had been miraculously vacated. And David, the great King David, is still in his tomb, great as he was. And so Psalm 16 refers to more than just David. David was being a prophet, Peter says in verse 30. He wasn't technically a prophet, but he spoke and wrote prophetically. So Peter says, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David, now that refers to 2 Samuel 7. There God gave an oath to David, as Peter puts it here, that he, God, would set one of his descendants on his throne. The key, if you go looking in 2 Samuel 7, is this one word, eternal. I think it's mentioned seven times in 2 Samuel 7. An eternal throne, your offspring forever, forever, forever. So David knew that God would give an eternal throne of David, not for David himself to be eternal, and neither for David to have an unending succession of merely human sons of David. We know that got broken hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. But Jesus comes as a son of David. 
the final son of David, the true son of David, the eternal son of David, the one for whom it is impossible to be held by death. And so Peter concludes this about David in Psalm 16. Here, verse 31, David, he says, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ in Psalm 16. He, that is the Christ, was truly not abandoned to Hades, nor did his, that is Christ's flesh, see corruption. How could it? He'd barely been in the tomb more than a couple of days. Now, how much did David foresee? Peter says David foresaw and spoke of. I don't know. I have sometimes said things like, David wrote better than he knew. I don't think Peter would be happy with that language, at least here. Peter is insisting on more. I think Peter is suggesting, David knew better than you might think. David knew of more than you might imagine. Remember, Jesus said of Abraham, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. How? How much? Well, I don't know. I don't know exactly. It really doesn't matter. Peter's greater point here is that the resurrection was God's plan all along. It was foretold. It was inscripturated. David said more than would actually fit David. He, he painted for himself. He made for himself shoes that were far too big for him to fill. And Peter's other point is that God did this. God vindicated Jesus. God raised him up, verse 32. And of that, we are all witnesses. We, the 12 apostles, we, among the 120 disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem, we've all seen him from the beginning. We ate with him. We, we slept with him. We were around him. We saw him. We saw the resurrected Savior. We were with him for 40 days in different places, with different people. Not just 120 of us here in Jerusalem, but hundreds outside of Jerusalem. They saw him, they heard him, some touched him, they ate with him. They are witnesses. So you can know this, Jesus of Nazareth is Christ the Lord. Fourth, you can know that on account of his ascension. His ascension, that's verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's referring to what we call the ascension. When Jesus, after 40 days after his resurrection, was taken up to heaven. That's recorded at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Here it's called not the ascension, notice the exaltation. It might be a more specific word. Ascension is the theological word. That's what you find in theology books. But the Bible tends to use this word exaltation more about Jesus' ascension. Ascension just describes geography. He ascended. But exaltation describes his geography and his exaltation, that he now reigns, that he is now seated. When Jesus ascended, he wasn't just going back home to more palatial digs. You know, he could take it no longer. 40 days after the resurrection, he put in his time, he checked out, he went back home. Oh no, Jesus ascending and being exalted meant he's exalted to reign 
First Peter 3 says he is now exalted at the right hand of God and angels and authorities and powers are all subject to him. And that's why he has the right to, to give the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that that Holy Spirit thing you saw and you said, what does this mean? Well, let's come back to that. Because Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God, he is now able to bestow the Spirit. And this is what you've seen and heard. And then another quote from a different Psalm of David. Now Psalm 110 gets quoted in verse 34 and 35. Just one sentence. David did not ascend into the heavens, Peter says, but he himself says, get this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Jesus himself made a big deal out of this Lord, Lord thing. You can read Jesus talking to the religious leaders about it in Mark chapter 12. But there's enough here for us to see what Peter's getting at. Look down, gaze at the words again. Let's see the logic in verse 34 and 35. The Lord, that's God. That's Yahweh, his personal name. The Lord God said to my Lord, David says. So David has a Lord. Who is David's Lord? David is the greatest on earth at this time. Who could possibly be David's Lord who also is addressed by the Lord, the God, Yahweh. Well, you know where this is going. It's Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus is David's Lord. So the Lord God, Yahweh, said to David's Lord, who would later be named Jesus, this is what God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David spoke of David's Lord, there has to be someone else besides David who is the Lord, who is exalted. David was never exalted to the right hand of God. David never ascended. David was given protection. Yes, God promised defeat of enemies generally, but David never ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 110, again, is a pair of shoes that are far too big for David to fill. And so again, we come to that conclusion I mentioned earlier. Verse 36, so let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, both Lord and Christ. It seems like the first Psalm, Psalm 16, would teach us that Jesus is the Christ. It would seem like the second psalm, Psalm 110, would, would show us and prove to us that Jesus has been made the Lord, Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. You notice how Peter's pretty relentless here. He won't take the gas off. He's pushing, he's turning the screws. This Jesus is the Lord, the promised one. God's one, God himself, God come and you crucified him. You were party 
to the crucifixion. You rejected him. You dismissed him. God was with Jesus. He was for Jesus. He showed you that this Jesus is no ordinary Jesus, though that was a common name back then. And to go against Jesus is to go against God. You've rejected Jesus. Therefore, you've rejected God. What you do with Jesus, you do with God. God has said what he thinks of Jesus. If you say otherwise, God is against you. And the evidence is stacked high. They were unmoved by the miracles. They were involved implicitly or explicitly in the crucifixion. They dismissed the accounts of the resurrection and ascension. What hope do these people have? Well, now there's a move. Verse 37 and following tells us something about a response. Therefore, in light of that, respond. Respond in four ways. We'll come back to these next week for a bit. But let's run through them this week. Therefore, respond with conviction like these people did in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced in their souls. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What humble desperation. Just tell us what to do. Is there any hope? Is there anything, is there any remedy for this guilt? They respond with conviction. Secondly, with repentance. Peter responds to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. There is hope. Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, some of those words need some clarification or unpacking, especially if you're new to the Bible. The word repent, it includes sorrow, but it's not just that. It's agreement with what God says, but it's not just that. It's confession. You've been wrong, and Jesus is right. But it's not just that. It's all that and more. The, the word repent means to turn. To turn to Jesus, yes. Some people point out to turn really means to change your mind. And that's part of it, no doubt. You have to change your mind about Jesus. Change your mind about your, yourself, your need, your sin. But it's not just that. You have to reorient yourself to God. You have to give up on whatever forms of self-salvation you've been leaning on all these years and cling only to Jesus. You have to give up on self-sufficiency and self-will. You won't do that perfectly, but you have to do it genuinely. Repent. And when you do, it turns to faith. It turns to belief. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You really can't have one truly without the other. They go together. And you might wonder as you look at verse 38, well, where is faith? Where is belief? It says repent and be baptized. Well, know this, that in Acts, sometimes repent and believe are put together. Repent and believe. Sometimes in Acts, it just says repent and clearly implied 
is belief. Other times in Acts, it says to believe. And clearly implied is that you would repent. You can't have one, you can't see a, a need to have faith unless you've repented. And you can't stay in repentance. You must go to Jesus in faith. They go together. You can't have one without the other. So repent, in parentheses, and believe, trust, put faith in, and be baptized. Baptism is a picture of repentance and faith. Baptism doesn't save, but it portrays salvation, and it is the happy obedience of all those who follow Jesus. It's a privilege to publicly identify with Jesus' death and resurrection for your forgiveness. It is a privilege to, to demonstrate to the world that you see yourself as a new creation. The old self is dead and buried, and there's a resurrected new self that walks in Jesus' ways. It's a privilege to portray to a watching world and to brothers and sisters in Christ that we believe our sins have been cleansed and washed away, and we are now clean. Repent. Be baptized. Thirdly, for salvation. Do you remember back at the end of Peter's quotation of Joel? This is verse 21. We saw this a couple weeks ago. There's that, that great phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on his name and be saved. You know what Peter's been doing ever since then? In the rest of his sermon, he's been identifying for us the name He's specifying for us the name upon which we call for salvation. Now it is not just God generally. It's Jesus. It's his name. In him there is salvation. So call on him. That's another way of wording repentance and faith. Call on him for the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful, rich little phrase the forgiveness of sins. That it could be a present certainty. I have the forgiveness of sins despite future sins still to come. This could be the umbrella. This could be the banner of my life. The forgiveness of sins, really? Without qualification, the forgiveness of sins as in all, no matter what? What sins can be forgiven? Well, which sins has Peter been pointing out? You crucified him. You rejected the Messiah. He's David's Lord for crying out loud. You saw, you heard the mighty works of God. They were attestation of who he is and what God sent him to do. And you plugged your ears. If those sins can be forgiven... Any sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven today. And if you believe, you repent and believe, you trust in Jesus for salvation, your sins will not only be forgiven, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could tell you everything that means. 
It means God's presence. It means God's power, power to proclaim, power to obey. It means God's peace, God's comfort, his nearness. It means God illuminating truth, bringing conviction, leading us on the way, on and on it goes. And this promise is for you and for your offspring and all who are far off. As many as the Lord will call to himself. Is the Lord calling you today? Do you sense his tug? Not just facts, not just debated history, but do you sense in your heart God has not only made this real, but pressed upon your heart. You are, this morning, maybe for the first time, cut. Maybe for the first time today, you say, what? shall I do? Is there any hope for me? Well, respond in repentance and faith for salvation with baptism. Do it as others have already. Look at verse 41. Here's our last point. As others have. So many others have. Here's just one day's worth. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here in Acts 2, it's 3,000. A couple chapters later, it's 5,000. I wonder what the tally is now. Who knows? Let me close with three questions for us to ponder an application. Three questions in closing. Number one is, what do you need to do next? Or where do you find yourself in this story, this scene? Maybe you're not asking the question, what must I do? You're back earlier in the story, and you're just simply asking like verse 12, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does all this Jesus stuff mean? King David, who cares? What does this mean? Well, don't stay there. Keep asking, what does this mean? In short, the answer what this means is that God is fulfilling his promises and saving the world through a rejected, risen, reigning Christ named Jesus, the God-man. And you have rejected him, either implicitly or explicitly. You have gone astray. But he died and was raised for salvation. So don't just ask, what does this mean? Keep asking that until you can move on to ask, to ask, what must I do? Are you cut to the heart this morning? Have you come to repent and believe? Are you saved? Is it possible you're saved and you've never been baptized? Friend, be baptized. This is one of Jesus' commands. This is, this is foundational to identifying with him and walking with him and, and proclaiming him to the world. Be baptized. Maybe you've been baptized. You're, you're saved. You believe. Have you ever been added to an identifiable group of baptized believers like these people were? They were added to the 120. They were added. They were now a group. We call it a church. This is a church. Church isn't just attending church like you attend the movies. It's, it's being added to it, identifying with it. 
committing yourself to it. Second question, Christian, what are you trusting in? Have you veered slightly from the sure foundation laid out for us in Acts 2? Do you know that in some ways we do not ever really move past these, these first steps, these foundational truths that we find in Acts 2? We simply keep retracing our steps and going deeper and deeper in the path. Here's what I mean. Being cut to the heart is not a one-time thing. If it's been a long time since you felt cut to the heart, that is convicted by your sin, friend, be careful. That's called hard-heartedness. It's dangerous. Be used to being cut to the heart. Repentance isn't a one and done. We keep repenting of our sin. We keep turning from our sin and turning to the Lord. We keep on believing. We keep calling on his name for salvation. We don't keep getting baptized, but we do live in light of our baptism. Have you forgotten to live in light of your baptism? To live in light of your cleansing, to live in light of the newness of life. To keep identifying publicly with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Have you forgotten you've been saved from this crooked generation? Have you been added to a group of baptized believers? If so, devote yourselves to it like these people did. We'll see more of that next week. You received his word. That's one way in which we describe faith. Becoming a Christian, getting saved. You received his word, keep receiving it. Don't give up. Third question, what are we trusting in as a church? What are we trusting in for ministry, for the spread of the gospel here and abroad? How will the gospel spread? What will God use? How does Jesus build his church? Well, look at Acts 2. Entertainment, a bit of a show with a little Jesus tagline at the end. What do we see in Acts 2? Preaching. Simple, straightforward, boldly declared preaching. Now, I don't highlight that because I'm a preacher. That doesn't just make me feel good. If anything, it makes me feel the weight of this important thing. But just read to the New Testament. You'll see God has chosen to use teaching and preaching Here we find Bible-filled preaching. Here we find Christ-centered preaching. Here we find Bible-filled, Christ-centered preaching which confronts sin. It's not loving to do otherwise. Sin's the problem. We gotta deal with it. But preaching, it doesn't stop there. It extends hope of salvation to all who are far off. To all that the Lord will call to himself. How does this happen in Acts 2? 3,000 souls converted after one sermon. Well, it wasn't Peter's eloquence. It isn't that if you read this to anyone today, they automatically become Christians. God was calling to himself. Jesus must do it. It is his doing. 
We, we don't trust in Peter's words or Peter's eloquence or some other guy's words or eloquence or, or any of that. Faithful preaching of God's word, proclaiming what it says, what he's done, who he is, what it means, and then praying that God would do a mighty work. And sometimes he will, and sometimes we shouldn't despise the days of small things. Jesus is at work, and he will build his church. Don't forget that in Acts 1.1, Luke, who wrote Acts, refers to Luke's gospel account as what Jesus began to do. So what is Acts? It's what Jesus continued to do. These, here in Acts 2, are the acts of the risen Lord. And he's still risen. And he's still reigning. So he's still at work. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glorious plan. We thank you for what you did that day in, uh, in Pentecost. We thank you that you use us at times. Lord, we pray for fruit in our church. We pray for people to be saved. We pray for men and women and children to be moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. Help us, Lord, to proclaim Help us, Lord, to live in light of your glorious resurrection. As Drew mentioned earlier, we're fools if you're not risen. But Lord, if you are risen, we believe you are, then we have great hope. Help us now to sing of your glorious resurrection with faith and joy and confidence in who you are and what you've done. Amen.